Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, welcome back. It's me, your host, Kevin Pollack. How are you? Are you, uh, you doing okay? Is your day or night or afternoon going well? Write to me, let me know. Just drop me a line. My MrMazaPod at gmail.com is how you do it. I'll be reading one of your emails later, which... Is not a question for me or one of the uh, participants of the program, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but rather, as I just requested, letting me know how you're doing. Just checking in. And uh, it's much appreciated, so I thought I would read one of those. We get lots, but I've just been reading questions. It's time for a, a, a comment, and that'll be coming a little later. My show today. Episode 38 of this here podcast um, features, uh, as threatened at the end of episode 37, the uh, Academy Award nominated David Paymer, who plays Harry Drake on the program. Yes, um, and, and David and I will talk about the season four opener, episode one of season four, uh, which you're about to hear, we'll... Uh, once again, Dave and I go on way too long, so it'll be broken up into two parts. You don't want a two-hour podcast, do you? No one does. I mean, not really. Longtime podcast creator and listener, I, uh, I have learned. So this first part, um, we'll get to indeed talk about, uh, start to talk about uh, season four, episode one. Uh, but first... You know, the world and, and uh, how David Paymer fits in and out of it. And it's, uh, it's a joy to spend time with this fella. I think you'll catch that. And um, write to me again, my Mrs. com, and let me know what you thought about part one of my conversation with David Paymer about season four, episode one, which begins now. you at home today is that true yes this is my little uh guest house or my bear cave uh-huh I go, I go to hide sure yeah and how, um how long have you had this uh wonderfully fashioned guest house to your liking um i guess about uh 20 uh, over 20 years like 22 years that's a long time that's a wonderful amount of time yeah yeah and you know i have a wife and two kids but i, I just need my little space you like to have a space. I have a space. You see, these are all my my um, awards, uh -huh. awards and photos from my great career. And do you spend time with them 
gazing I, I, at the... Perhaps I spend more time with my <laughs> certificates of nomination than uh, my family. Yeah. Well, listen, balance. <laughs> there is a healthy balance, I think. Yeah, whatever you uh, deem the balance to be is, in fact, correct. Well, thank you, Kevin. I, yeah, I mean, come on. No, that means thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I should say, sometimes people think I'm you. Uh, I get that. I get do you get that? that? Yep. And um, so if they say to me, uh, oh, you were great in A Few Good Men. You say thank I you. I usually just say thank you. <laughs> I was, and yeah. you were too. Yeah. Well, listen. Um, and and now I'm telling my wife that I've got the Zoom working. Thank you, honey. All right. Did she Kevin have a and look? I figured it out. Did she have a look of surprise when you? She was. Oh, yeah, a little chagrined. Uh huh. <laughs> now speaking of wives, my better half, uh, such a big fan of yours, not here today, well, or she would be. Uh, popping in to, to uh, fawn. So I'll fawn for her. But oh. she uh, absolutely loves character actors. Once accosted Tony Shalhoub uh, a good 15 years before we knew each other at a uh, men's store uh, of the uh, Bloomingdale's uh, in, the, in the center of town. <laughs> but yeah, he was behind her in line and, and with an item in his hand and said to the clerk or to her maybe excuse me can i and she turned around before he could finish and said oh my goodness you're tony shalhoub and he said that that's right and um she said i love character actors uh, uh i'm with, with kevin pollock and he, tony said well then maybe he can pay for this yeah. <laughs> and so she she uh when people come up to me sometimes and say what's the thing i know you from she says he's david payment Oh, really? Yeah. Because that puts an end to it. It's like, then you don't <laughs> yeah. have to go through all your credits. Oh, it's the greatest. It's the joy. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'm going to try that because, um, you know, I, I've had that where I say, well, maybe you saw me in this or, and they yeah. say, no, that. And so I'm going to, I'm going to throw in some Kevin Pollack. And, uh, <laughs> or just say, on. yeah, just say I'm Kevin Pollack. And they'll yeah. probably say, I don't know who that is, but you do look familiar to me. <laughs> um yeah it's the joy it's the it's the blessing and the curse i don't mind the curse because we get to have a life right we do yeah, yeah. i mean we got the best of both i think and yeah because people do recognize me and sometimes sure and sometimes they know my name right um sometimes they just recognize the face yeah but but then other times i can go on my way with my family and not yes. be accosted and not feel the you know, there's a stalker out there or whatever. Yeah. Um, so the, the best part might be that we get work based on our work. Right. right. We don't yeah. get we don't necessarily get work based on putting butts in the seats or even these days, how many followers we have on social media. It's based on our, our body of work, which I think may be every actor's goal. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we've been you know, doing it a long time. Very so. fortunate. In fact, <laughs> I want to go back to, uh, you'd mentioned briefly when we spoke uh, about coming to Los Angeles in 1979. Isn't that around the time you did my favorite comedy of all time, The In-Laws? It is. And 
in a way, doing The In-Laws, which was my first movie. Yeah. Um, that's what got me to L.A. Uh, I was fortunate enough uh, to, I was on Broadway at the time in the show Grease. That would be the original. Wow. The original show. I did not create the, the role of Sonny, yeah. who I played. Um, but uh, I was in Greece from like 76 to 79, you know, right out of college, which was University of Michigan. Right. And, um, you know, I went to an open call and, and I got the part for the national touring company. Then they sent me to Broadway and I had, you know, the Danny Zuko at the time was uh, my dear friend who passed this year, Treat Williams. Yes. And, yeah. And um, so I mistreat a lot. Um, but uh, Patrick Swayze was one of the Danny Zuko's and uh, good Lord, Peter Gallagher. And so anyway, during that time, I got the audition to do the in-laws. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, cause I was in Greece, I guess maybe I had a little heat. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I met Arthur Hiller, the director, and I read for him and he cast me in the role. Yeah. And it was my first movie and I played a cab driver. Um, I, my driver's license had expired. So I, you know, I pretended that it hadn't. Mm -hmm. And um, I was driving Peter Falk and Alan Arkin around New York city. And it was, <laughs> it was pretty wild. So, uh, the production was out of Los Angeles or the whole thing was out of New York? They shot that out of New York. It was out in New York. Yeah. yeah. Um, Andrew Bergman was the writer. Andrew Bergman. Oh, Great what an writer. extraordinary, extraordinary talent. Yeah. And Arthur Heller directed. Another amazing talent. So uh, any. So so the film, as I mentioned, is my favorite comedy of all time. Uh, <laughs> Alan Arkin and Peter Falk not only become staples of my stand-up act involving doing impersonations, but I got to meet uh, them both and, and work with Alan and become friendly. And, you know, it's weird when you, to me, it's weird when you meet, let alone become friendly with a hero. But that early in your career, um, I assume you're wildly aware of these two extraordinary talents that you're suddenly in a scene with and what's going through your mind other than don't fuck it up <laughs> i think don't fuck it up yeah uh, but um after that is it you know when you're that young and i think i was 23 when i shot that uh -huh. and um and you're suddenly thrust into the major players of the you know movie, movie industry it's it's just surreal you know right, right you 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 can't quite i don't know you can't quite accept it so i guess we have to stay with our with our work and you know what would we worked on whether it was in acting school or college or whatever and um you know what's my objective in the scene and peter falk is is looking at me and i'm i'm asking him yeah. about uh, you know what are the benefits of of working for the CIA and um I know you do it better than I Kevin <laughs> please, but the, please. One, the 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 trick is not to get killed that's <laughs> really the, that's really the key to the benefit program <laughs> now you do it 10 times better <laughs> it's such a great line it's, that's really the key to the benefit 
program. Yeah. <laughs> the trick uh, is, give me one. The trick is, give me a little talk. Well, here's what happened. So are you familiar with this? I'm from San Francisco originally, this uh, comedy festival that just ended, I think, last weekend, every year. It's three weekends. Uh, San Francisco Sketch Fest. Have you uh, heard? I've heard of it. Yes. Yeah. So one year, uh, I there was a showing of the in-laws at the big uh, historical landmark movie theater, the Castro Theater. And, And beforehand, I interviewed Alan Arkin. And we, like I said, know each other a long time. We worked together years ago. Then during COVID, the organizers of it were doing Zoom uh, performances. And they asked if I would do the scene with Alan. I would do the Peter Falk part. with If we would just read the scene for Zoom <laughs> audience that precedes your scene with them getting into the cab. So it's the scene in the little in the dental office. Uh, no, I thought it was the diner that they came from. No, they. Oh, okay, don't... yeah, they they shot it at the, um, not the Horn and Hard back then, but the, uh, yeah, I forgot what it, what it was called, but yeah, a little coffee shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like a seven or eight page scene, and it's it's beautiful, amazing arc and anger. Uh and beautiful, amazing cluelessness uh, from Peter Falk's character in terms of the pea soup and the crackers uh, really absorbs the grease and uh, the crackers. You want to put crackers in this show because it really absorbs the grease, you see. And I I have a, a, a Zoom recording of Alan and I doing it, and I watch it every now and then because it's... It's beyond a joy, needless to say. Yeah. Um, but working with those greats, yeah, and 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 back to um Andy Bergman. So this will be uh you mentioned you getting credit for a few good men and and you should. Um <laughs> th- this little Andrew Bergman story I'd like to share. Oh, please. I love him. Yeah, um, is I think a great lesson to any actor out there with with hopes and dreams and maybe stuck in the disappointment wheel of audition rejection and what have you, opportunities missed and the doubt that comes with them about, I don't know, uh, before A Few Good Men, I am... I, um, sent the script and I end up screen testing. It's a movie written by Andrew Bergman that he'll be directing. And I am screen testing opposite Sarah Jessica Parker. And it's between me and one other actor for the part. It's the movie is called honeymoon in Vegas, which I, I was trying to think. And I know Nick, who was it. Nick, was it the Nick Cage movie? It, it is in fact, now referred to as the Nick Cage movie. But <laughs> for a moment in time, when when I say it was between Nicholas and myself, it seems a no-brainer that everyone would prefer Nicholas. But um, Alan uh, Andrew Bergman, who wrote and would direct it, preferred me because if you had read the script, you knew that the role was written 
as a nebbish, a nebbishy Jew, Albert Brooks type who, right. uh, who Andy really, really wanted in the part. It was the studio who said, boy, this, we would really like to see Nick Cage in this. And, you know, a writer director uh, needs to make peace with th moments like that. But it was very touch and go. And I, I think I ended up screen testing a second time. And really, he was really, I think, trying to shove me down the, the throats of the studio who just were not having it. As I mentioned, this is before A Few Good Men. So I'd done Barry Levinson's Avalon. I'd done a few. Which, which you were wonderful in, by the uh, way. Oh, the, the Great um, Jews Saga. Yeah, but a great movie. And you were you were terrific. Thank you. He, yeah. Fortunately for me, Levinson did not like actors acting. And I, I was a stand-up comedian who knew very little about acting. So it was really the, the confluence of these things. But so the Andy Bergman thing goes Nick Cage's way because that's what the studio wants and that's what the studio gets. And he's terrific in the film because he's terrific in, in pretty much everything. Now, to get that close to the brass ring was a first for me. And to then not get the part was easily the most devastating because screen testing twice, you know, you uh, when you don't have any experience going through that sort of thing. And the writer director who's technically in charge of casting <laughs> right. is in is in your face in, saying on your court, in your court, you're yeah. the one I want, you know, sure. tends to rise, raise one's hopes. Um. And so it was easily the most devastating moment and remains in the top five. Two sure. weeks later, two weeks, I get a few good men and my life changes forever. Wow. So it wasn't a window closing and a door opening. It was a window closing and a garage door opening. I mean, it was... It was... You're not available for that if you do this. Um, right. And and in A Few Good Men, I after that movie, I went from auditioning to getting offers. Right. I mean, that was the turning point. Yeah. Um, as, as much as folks listening might have loved Honeymoon in Vegas, and, and it's pretty damn wonderful, uh, it, it opened to $9. It, no one saw it. <laughs> And it changed no one's career or trajectory. <laughs> um, not even the skydiving Elvises, I think, got much heat after that. Right. Film. So, well, a, a very bizarre. Well, you know, that's the thing with this business. And I think that's sort of the carrot that keeps us all going because, yes, you know, just when things look bleak, um, there Around can the be, a, you know, a gift from the gods or really just something that it's your time for, you know. And and I always hated that expression, you know, when I didn't get something. Oh, don't worry. You know, one door closes, another door opens. And I was like, bullshit. I didn't get the frigging job. Come on. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. but in your case, uh, it sounds like that was true. And I think, you know, I think it is true if you can be patient and if you can wait and also if you can have other things going on in your life creatively and emotionally and you know of things that are of interest to you because 
we both know it's probably not healthy to sit by the phone and wait for it to ring. So not healthy that I created a mantra. Um, I don't at least 15 years ago. If you're not creating, you're waiting. Mm -hmm. Because we were trained to wait by the phone. So rather than wait, let's let's create. Let's, Absolutely. Um, be more proactive in, in also not bad life advice. If you're waiting for life to happen. Um, but were there any, uh, I agree with you when, when the door window slammed shut uh, and you get that advice. Well, another thing, it's the last thing you want to hear. It helps. Yeah. It helps nothing. It's a horrible salve. Stop handing it out. That's going <laughs> to, that phone you may or may not hear in the background is going to be the, in fact, maybe I should wait for it to hear if you hit the automated voice. There it I, is. I don't know if you could hear that spam risk. Oh, okay. Call from spam risk. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe you could have a good talk uh, with spam risk. I talk about the I just, show. I, I just I love know. that they built into the system. Uh, we 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 know when it's a spam call. We're going to let you know, but your phone's still going to ring nine times. Half the time, um, at least, it'll it'll be a illegal spam call. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you. Do 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 you recall any? Uh, as much as you hated the advice, wait for the next door to open, where a job came along where you would not have been available if that thing you wanted had happened. I mean, I remember hearing Kirk Douglas say, when asked a similar annoying question, well, if I took every job I turned down and turned down every job I took, do you know where I'd be right now? Where I am now. <laughs> right. You know. Right. But they are there are these um, sliding doors, I guess we call them, that we we think something's going to change our life, and and as you say, yeah, have have some other things going on, um, but persevere. There must have been some persevere moments. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I you know I was fired from uh, the TV series Saint Elsewhere when I was uh, was my first series. Oh Jesus. I I was fired and I was replaced by Howie Mandel. Oh Christ. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Howie and I have discussed it since and we're, everything's fine. But a um, Canadian Jew, there's nothing more painful. <laughs> but um Shalom, eh? You know, they did a thing, they shut down production, they fired the director, they fired other actors too, so it wasn't just me. Um, but of course, at age 27, as as you said, with your audition with your callbacks yeah. and honeymoon it was the most painful devastating thing in my life yeah um and um but i kept working and i didn't stop and i i remember i booked a a taxi episode like for nbc two months after they fired me and i said oh well at least they'll still hire me same <laughs> network I, yeah same network um and then Year, uh, several years later, I mean, I, I always worked as a character actor, but probably in relative anonymity, uh, where people wouldn't even know my name. <laughs> um, but then I met Billy Crystal yeah. in uh, 1990, right. which was also for, for an audition for City Slickers. 
Um, actually, Ron Underwood was the director of City Slickers. Uh-huh. And um, Billy and I hit it off. I remember I, I wore a Western tie to the audition. And he was like, that's a great tie, man. I love that tie, that Western tie. Um, Bolo, uh, yeah. You know, the string tie. Yeah, yeah. On a Jew, it always looks a little. Sure, weird. sure. <laughs> um, but I did City Slickers. And while I was doing City Slickers, Billy was writing Mr. Saturday Night. Mm. And unbeknownst to me, he was thinking of me to play his brother. Yeah. Um, just because we were out in the desert filming city slickers i don't know it was yeah and then i did you know about a it was almost a year later i auditioned for billy and um i got had the call back and um you know i, I remember billy said uh, you know it's going to take me a few days to to make up my mind you know to decide and so i don't want you to sweat it over the long july 4th weekend and I came home. I said to my wife, Liz, I said, I, I think I blew it. I don't think I got it. I wasn't as good. Call mm. back. I said, I just don't think I had it. Phone rang. Dave, it's Billy Crystal. How'd you like to be my brother? Yeah, nice. <laughs> and we just went crazy. We jumped up and down. We screamed. We hollered. I thanked Billy. I, th I called everyone, my parents, my, my friends, my every, you maybe. I <laughs> Everyone. Ten minutes later, the phone rings again. Dave, it's Billy Crystal. Did someone just call pretending to be me? <laughs> and I had that like heart attack. That's moment. pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good. So that was a good thing. The, the the reason for the long story was to just put a finish on the Howie Mandel part of it. Um, and that is I ran into the producer of saying elsewhere shortly after i i got an oscar nomination for yeah Mr. you did I, I, I hate to uh whatever and i did give this producer who had fired me i gave him a big hug and i said thanks for the oscar nomination thanks for getting me out of tv and into movies yeah and so you know they say revenge is always a best served cold so and you know that what can i say as an actor we uh we remember the bittersweet memories too. And it's always nice to, um, you know, to come back with something. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. I, my, I gave, um, the, uh, I'm trying to remember what, what body of voters gave me some film award years ago in Canada and said, uh, I wanted to thank the, uh, members of uh, this academy but specifically the ones who voted for me <laughs> uh the ones who didn't what, what does this feel like right now <laughs> to be this wrong <laughs> yeah you know I, we we i i'm not you know i don't want to give the impression that i'm i i really you know going into this business you know that these things are going to happen you you need to accept the rejections and yeah. you know that that it's not fair right you know show business is not fair life fair life is not fair yeah so you know there's a lot of i think life lessons that that i've learned along the way uh, as an actor you know yeah. um, and uh 
you know, and part of it is living with the fact that, hey, so-and-so got this part and I didn't. And what the hell? But I got some other part that he didn't get, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if we're lucky, we have yeah. these problems. Yes. And these disappointments. Right. And these comebacks and these, I mean, I just find them interesting because um, most of the actors that I've worked with and talked to have gone through forms of this and each one seems pretty much pretty unique in, while a shared experience, you know? Um, right. So listen, the let's not completely brush over the Oscar nomination because um, as I recall, the the film was not a uh, Mr. Saturday Night was not a ginormous um, box office success. So when usually when that happens, it's less in the minds of the voting body when a film um, may get some good reviews. But for some reason, the the, the numbers that matter more to the uh, studio than anyone else uh don't stack up. So then the for the nomination to come to a film that so few less people saw, um, was that even more of a surprise or the whole thing was just a surprise? It, it, it was a you know, it was a surprise. I, I did get a Globe nomination, which is sometimes a precursor. Yes. But um you know, maybe it was because well, I love the movie, and Billy and I went on and did it. We did it on Broadway as a musical just last year, which I'm um, sure was sold out across the board. It, it was. It did great. I yeah. mean, it. it and, and you know the the thing is, when we first did the movie, we were like, whatever. I was in my late 30s. Billy was about 40, and we had all this prosthetic makeup. We were in the makeup chair for five and a half hours for the movie. Yeah, for the Broadway show last year, no makeup required. <laughs> just show you'd up. waited yeah, yeah. <laughs> just show up dave you're there yeah um but uh yeah it is it is hard in terms of getting not you know a nomination it, it's certainly hard if, if the movie you know is not seen by as many people as you want to see and i was surprised and of course um my fellow nominees were your buddy jack nicholson for a few good men <laughs> Which was odd because I was in a few good men and I was being nominated <laughs> for the other movie. Uh, yeah. Um, no, it was it was Nicholson, yeah. it was Pacino for Glenn Gary, it was Hackman for Unforgiven, who oh, en ended one. up winning. Yeah, yeah. And then it was um Crying Game. Oh my. Jay, um, forgive me. Uh he was wonderful in the crying game. He sure um, was, yeah. But, you know, to, I mean, that was surreal against, I knew against Nicholson and Pacino and Hackman. And my publicist said to me the day I was nominated, first thing he said, you're not going to win. <laughs> so what I a, fired him. Yep. And, <laughs> and then I, the second publicist said, you're not going to win. So I hired back the first one. Anyway. <laughs> um, but. I knew, you know, of course, I was the new guy, but it was it was such a again, I can surreal is the only way to describe it. Of I'm, course, my you know, my parents were both with me at the time and they're they're both gone now. And yeah. it means a lot to me that 
they got to see that, you know. Oh my goodness, and to, yes. And to sit with me and they were divorced too and they actually sat together. Oh, wow. uh, it was also amazing to me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a trip. Uh, it's a trip that, you know, we all think of when we're kids. Absolutely. And um to to get there, I, you know, of course, I have Billy to thank and so many people to thank for that. Hey, am I giving my speech? Um, why Why not? Uh, but but th that's the thing also. Um, the term to be nominated is the thing or the honor or what have you. It's just good enough to be nominated. Has been poo-pooed. But the fact of the matter is, um, in this case, there are five nominees out of, I don't know, 5,000 performances that year. That could have been. So I always oh, yeah. felt the winner is a popularity contest or in the case of the unforgiven, it's all about this big comeback thing. Um, uh, you know, momentum for, for Clint Eastwood and what have you. And it just swept up, but the, yeah. the nomination to be, to, to be uh, honored as the top five of the year. Uh, man oh man to me is that always been the victory that that is a once in a lifetime that nomination for sure is once in a lifetime and does not happen to the majority of artists throughout their lives and yeah yeah to share that with your folks must have just been magical it, it really was i mean yeah. it, it you know you think about it it has meaning you know, within the business, of course, and careers. Yeah. And it has personal, emotional meaning um, with your family and with, you know, with your folks. And if you're lucky enough to have them around. Yeah. And yeah. You, yeah. you say you did the um, Broadway musical of Mr. Saturday Night. Yes. Last year. Yeah. Last year. And I believe at the center of our, our chat today, are the Paladinos. They came to see one of the performances. They did. They did. Um, I invited them and a Amy and Dan came. Uh -huh. And uh, it was just, it was great, great having them there. And uh, we talked, you know, we saw, I saw them afterwards. And, um, you know, Amy's dad, maybe, maybe you knew him. Um, Don Sherman, uh, he was a stand up comic. And, you know, Amy was telling me that they were, he was in a way like a Buddy Young kind yeah. of comic, which is the comic Billy played in the show. Right. Yeah. Did you, did you I, know Don or? I didn't. I, I didn't. But I became very familiar with him once I started working on Maisel and, and um, you know, he and talked to Amy about growing up in the house of a stand up comedian who had appeared on Playboy After Dark, for example, which is one of the reasons she had that scene for Lenny Bruce, who himself had had a, a famous appearance on the show. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, but also just one of the reasons Amy knows this world, but also this language among comedians, and maybe why the monologues that she writes um she saw around her house uh you know or so it's 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 it, it just became such great um backstory in terms of of amy but amy I'm and sure. dan 
are such big Broadway babies. They see everything. And I'm sure right. they must, they must've loved the show. Loved it. Just, just loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've talked extensively on this podcast about Amy and Dan is their brilliance in writing and directing, but also casting. They really do have an eye and they know what they want. And they, because they choose performers who they feel quite strongly about in the parts, they tend to give very little direction. I'm curious if that was your experience while working as Harry Drake in the various episodes of the series. I think that's that's pretty accurate, Kevin. I I was not I did not feel over directed in any way. Uh, I always felt embraced by them. Yeah. That um, like you say, they hired me because they knew I was in the general area of what they wanted so there might be a little tweaking uh here and there right. but yeah but for the most part they, they were hands off and you know I, it was something i was going to say and i i don't know how it was for you guys being series regulars i you know i was what we would call a recurring character on the show i think i i think i did about six or seven over mm -hmm. the course of the uh, series uh, which i was so proud to do really to be part of the show um but the thing is like from the first episode on i never knew where harry drake was going yeah in my relationship with susie or yep midge or you know any anyone else and i you know and in a way i thought that was so freeing yeah. because isn't life like we don't really know what's going to happen next, Kevin? We were just talking about it, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, and Harry, and I don't I don't know what you do with spoiler alerts here. I'm, I won't say anything. But people what it, people yeah. haven't seen everything. But, That's you know, Harry, Harry ends up having quite an arc yeah. in, in Susie's, well, in his life, but in Susie's life as well. Absolutely. And, and in the career of Susie and Mitch. Yeah. And at first he's just he's seemingly just someone who Susie insults for being like an old guy and they throw they toss insults around. Yeah, yeah. Um and and so, giving Sophie Lennon advice. Exactly. So yeah, I I didn't feel that um any, that Amy or, or Dan were pushing anything on me. They were they were giving me freedom, which is a lovely way to work. Yeah, I remember uh being so thrilled um also just delighted when when i heard you were going to do harry drake and because i you know i'm acutely aware of of their casting abilities and so when you get a script um and you see new characters come into the storyline the first thing i do is is wonder and 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 imagine and um you were just so spot on and then you know, to be able to banner with with Susie Meyerson as brought to life by Alex. <laughs> yes. Um, what was if you have any memories of the first sort of outing between the two of your characters um, early on when she when Susie comes to Harry? Was it at the yeah 
uh, Friars Club was that yes, it was in the it was in the Friars Club, yeah. which I love. Yeah, you know, because yeah. again, it's it's I mean all that New York, all that New York feeling just bleeds through, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, they could have built a set, but it was <laughs> we were really in the Friars Club, you know. So, um, and in terms of Alex, as she just she just ups my game. Yeah. She, she is spot on with that character and with her own instincts as an actress. And um, you never know what you're going to get from her, especially when you're swapping insults yeah. like Harry and Susie do. You know, and she's saying things to me that are, you know, kind of nasty, like, go get your prostate checked or, you know, old man, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but she... She, I knew that I had to be on for her and that I had to be listening with all my senses, you know, so that I can inhabit that character and that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel the same way about all the actors on the show. And, oh, absolutely. and Alex is certainly no exception in terms of, okay, I'm going to have to be as good as I am capable in every moment that the camera is rolling. Yeah. Which, technically, you should feel all the time, but we don't. You know, we're as good as oh. the company we keep. We're as guilty as, as anyone else in terms of... I try to explain to others about also the life of the character actor in terms of, of, of working, if we're fortunate enough to be around for many decades. Um, they can't all be winners. Sometimes you have to just make the donuts. <laughs> and I remember saying that to Alan Arkin and him, what are you, what are you talking about? What, what are you saying you, to me? Uh, what, donuts. Donut. I didn't make, I, I didn't make any donuts. What, uh, like a cookie cutter? What? Alan. How do you make a donut? What do you, <laughs> did you they'll have donut hole? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I'm glad. First of all, thank you so much for I've I've wanted you to be on the podcast, and um, I so thank you for making time. We're oh, sure. and I'm glad we settled on a very important episode in terms of the timing. Uh, uh, as I'm doing this podcast, I'm trying to go in chronological order, but I'm talking to people in between. Um, David Mullen, for example, just had a couple episodes drop with him, our cinematographer, right. just, a, just about the look of the show, um, drilling down on some episodes, but not in a chronological way necessarily. Whereas you and I today get to break down season four season premiere, episode one. Yes, um, which I'm not in, um, but I... <laughs> I that's will right. say that I think it's a great episode and that's, we discussed it and that's why, why I thought it was worth talking about because I even have some questions for you, but why don't you begin? Um, yeah, sure. No, let's, uh, I want to first mention the title of the episode rumble on the wonder wheel. Um, written and directed by Amy Sherman Palladino. Right. Um, this was one of those rare episodes where because it was a season opener, we were asked to gather as a cast a little early to do pretty extensive rehearsal just for the Carnegie, uh, excuse me, Coney Island scenes oh, featuring the Wonder Wheel. 
um, with tape on the ground the way one would rehearse a play hmm. uh, at our sound stages months and months before because we I think we were starting in January and we you rehearsed were, that scene months before you actually shot it only because of the weather so we were going to start shooting the season um, in January of that year and we would be shooting for eight or ten months and so it was decided well since we're going to shoot at Coney Island as an exterior Let's not pray for good weather in January, February, or March, but rather push this to April. Got it. Um, but while we have that little grace time before we start shooting each year, we would rehearse some bigger stuff. And so the Coney Island Wonder Wheel stuff was rehearsed extensively. But this episode does not begin at... Um, oh, here I am. Yeah. No, at, it doesn't begin there. At Coney Island. Um, I had forgotten that it begins at the gaslight because it's used as this wonderful wraparound for the episode. Uh, Midge is on stage. And now remember the end of season three, a very tragic, uh, heartbreaking ending where Midge and Susie are left on the tarmac as her career and dreams fly away. Hey, um, isn't it interesting, Kevin, that you and I both told stories about how our dreams flew away? Yeah. I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> and But here we are. So, and yeah. then Mitch went on. Okay, go yeah. ahead. No, it's a beautiful <laughs> recurring theme um, that I think is, I think it's part of the genius of Amy Sherman Palladino to, to, when when we first started shooting the series, I joined in episode two of season one. It was made clear she saw this show as a five season arc. She said in success, if we're allowed to do mm -hmm. five seasons, which at that point nobody knew. So that part of that arc of the five seasons, in fact, the end of season three arguably being near the middle of this five-season arc. The greatest dream and fantasy. She'd given up her big romance with Dr. Benjamin in season three because she knew going on the road and opening for Shia Baldwin was her destiny. And then that destiny takes off on the plane without her is how season three ends. Yeah. Um. And so before we get to that cab ride away from the tarmac, Amy Sherman Palladino takes us on stage for the first part of the stand-up comedy wraparound, which is Midge and her thesis of revenge. Yes. Uh, and it's just another brilliant mini tirade. Uh, that totally. I, yeah, that I had forgotten. And it frames the, I believe it frames the episode too. Yeah. It's a it comes back at the end. And it is, again, what you and I were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Then, not total revenge. But. Yeah. And and um, as we get to the next scene where Midge and Susie are in the cab, um, the cabbie portrayed by Howard W. Overshorn. O-V-E-R-S-H-O-W-N. Over. 
Schoen. An, uh, an interesting name for an actor. Uh, yeah. And I'm glad you tell the names of all these wonderful actors who are in the show. I tried I mean, to. Yeah. yeah. I, I was looking at something on IMDb, you know, and just yeah. about the show itself. And, you know, it said a actors 1,503. I mean, I think that's the, I don't know if that's the five seasons, but there are, you know, in any given episode, as you know, there's, there's got to be 35 actors, you know. Um, yeah, we... Parts, small parts, big parts, whatever. It's we, we carried, I think, talk about recurring, but we had mm -hmm. eventually 100 uh, background actors that were sort of people we, we kept on the show. That you kept as regular. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's great. Yeah, um, and, and the famous... Uh, was it the season premiere where we airplane hangar uh, where she's performing for the USO and there were nine, we set the record for most uh, um, extras in costume. Really? Somehow beating out game of Thrones. I think we were told with 908 <laughs> men, men in uniform. I'd say men and Even women, in the... but not in world war two. It was. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Even, even, uh, with CGI. Yeah, well, see, that's just it. Uh, we can't compete with the CGI. But in terms of practical human beings. No, that's what I mean. They yeah. They did, did it for real. Yeah, they did it for real. Yeah. Uh, so I do like to shine a little light. In this case, Howard W. Good. was overshone, but there we are. We will. We've shone, we shined a light. Okay. Uh, so our dynamic duo drives away from the tarmac of broken dreams, as I write here in my notes. Midge is giggling uncontrollably. Um, which which is an odd reaction and and scares Susie a little. But I do, again, that's a nice little touch of inappropriate, involuntary human behavior in a time of devastation. Yeah. Right? Like sure. people laughing at a funeral, sometimes the only choice. It's uh, to relieve the anxiety, stress. Horror. Grief. Yeah. Yeah. In this Sorry case, thing is bothering him. In this case, abject horrors is what Midge is experiencing. Um, and naturally, uh, uh, Susie's a little startled. But then Midge's giggling uh, gives way to Midge throwing her clothing out the window. And <laughs> <laughs> again, another specific, hilarious choice for a person in trauma to go through. Totally. <laughs> And then they're eventually standing out on the curbside. Uh, which allows Miriam, I noticed weirdly for the, uh, that uh, some characters call her Miriam and some call her Mid. mid but, I, I, but I do love how those of us who do call her Miriam, I know Moish did and Abe did and Susie did. I think Rose does. Maybe more people do that. I think about it. Who the hell calls her Midge? Um, I think just the younger people call her. I Midge. think maybe they, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's such a, such affection uh, in that word, uh, in that name choice, because I know she represents herself as high. I'm Midge Maisel. Um, 
anywho, it just it just was a reminder as I was watching this, the way Susie's trying to simmer her down and get her bearings and center her back to reality as she's finally coming unglued. And she just keeps saying Mary. And it was making me laugh. Um, but Miriam is finally allowed to unload the horror going on in her brain. And they get into a physical altercation. There's a tree branch used. Oh, right. right. Yeah. There's so much going on. A truck drives past in the background and, and takes notice of her scantily clad um, falling apart. Right. Uh, but it, it's, it was a, such a creative way. Again, I always like to look at these scenes and then step away and go, okay, I'm in the writer's room and I have to create a moment for Susie and Midge to face the music of this tragic ending of season three. We're going to have to begin season four. We got to talk about it. So what, and just all the possible creative settings. What does one go through in this situation? And as show writers, how do I make this entertaining and funny and not just maudlin and sad? And then I go back into the scene and watch and I look at the outcome of mm -hmm. that creative challenge. And boy, oh boy, did they rise to the occasion every damn time. Yeah. And beyond, beyond what I could have fathomed from the throwing of the clothes out the window to, you know, what does someone go through in this situation? And so they, they do sort of, there's a physical tussle. There's some spanking of a child uh, <laughs> played out. And then they're so exhausted back in the cab. That they've, they've, uh, and that's what needs She's to dressed again, as I recall. Yeah. <laughs> now what? Yeah. Then the now what of it, right? Um, and they end up back at the gaslight. Yeah. Uh, in the middle of the night, I guess, to sleep it off. Um, but as they do, per usual, we learn more about them as they continue to learn more about each other, uh, which I always love. Here we are in season four, and they're still discovering. Right. Uh, as their relationship and, and uh, trajectory uh, move along hand in hand. and. Mm -hmm. And discovering more about each other, which of course allows the audience to learn more about them. Um, it's just, yeah, it's it's uh, more just more character information, which is always great. Yeah. Well, and they have secrets from each other, as it know, turns out. As it turns out, so Mitch is curious about money. Yeah, and um, Susie's got her problems. Uh, so there is that kind of underlying, what do they know? What might they know? What might they find out? What will happen if they find out? Um, that's, you know, that has this, adds a whole level of tension, um, sometimes comic tension to the, to the scene. Yes. Um, and I think it, it works beautifully. Yeah. My money. Yeah. <laughs> becomes 
And then the music chosen, Ella Fitzgerald sings yeah. Darn That Dream. Darn That Dream, yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, at one point, Midge suits up and heads out into Washington Square to look for the heartbreaking news as it's reported in the papers. And that's when she comes back in and they have the the talk evolves to where's my money? I want my need my money. Um, Midge breaks down that historical firing and also in terms of it beyond humiliation and broken dreams, but uh, her concerns about why uh, buying her apartment. I remember Susie's reaction to why would you buy an apartment? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, be, you know, I mean, from Midge's perspective, she she was rolling in it. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't spend any of her gig money. And there was a lot of it. She'd been doing a lot of shows. I think it's established. Exposition wise. Expository. That they were on. Uh, she'd been touring for a while, opening up for. Shy Baldwin in the States before this European launch. And uh, right. there's a good kitty, which is why she went to Moish in one of my favorite scenes uh, previously at season three when, and said, I'm going to buy my farm. That's right. beautiful, beautiful stuff. So um, next we go back to Washington Park where Susie um after talking briefly with the newspaper owner and the wino at the payphone uh calls her sister Tess um Emily Burgle do you know Emily I don't I don't she's so wonderful I but I I've not met her yeah she really is terrific I, and I had her as a guest on the podcast it's a great episode she's marvelous and wonderful and Spoke a lot about having seen her not too long before that in Goodnight Oscar with uh, now Tony Award winner Sean Hayes. She played oh, right. uh, Oscar Levant's wife oh, and brilliantly um, in wow. that ex exceptionally successful run. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, so Susie calls Tess and says, we got to get that check. Um, right. And then, because it's the season opener, we've got several storylines to get our audience caught up in. And we, in fact, from Washington Park Payphone, we go to the Button Club. Yeah, we go to the Button Club. That's how that first part with David Paymer ends. We go to the Button Club. And that's a cliffhanger. We'll pick up in part two what happens at the Button Club in that moment of uh, season four, episode one, when my uh, conversation with David Pamer uh, continues next week. Next episode of the pod, episode 39, Pamer part two. Um, yeah. Yeah. How about that? Just, um, I do want to clarify one little tiny thing. So when I was saying that Mr. Saturday Night had not done well, I was trying to emphasize, I hope this came across, but if it didn't, I got a little insecure. I was trying to emphasize how much more extraordinary it is that 
David Pamer was nominated and how much more of a celebration it should be for him, of him. Because when a picture doesn't do well to still stand out in, in voters' minds as a member of the Academy is very, very difficult, extraordinarily so. And so I wanted to give extra credit. That's what that was about. Uh, okay, let's, um, let's open up the mailbag as threatened at the uh, earlier part of the, this particular program. This uh, comes from Irma. Uh, and Irma writes, Dear Kevin, I hope this email finds you well. I recently discovered your podcast and I'm so excited to dive in. I have been studying David Mullen's work so I can embody that same tremendous melodious visual style into my animation project I am writing. I am so jazzed you have uh, the series coming up with them. Um, yeah, the two-parter that just uh, dropped with David Mullen, and then there'll be another two-parter. Um, melodious, I like that word. I worked, uh, Irma goes on in animation, gives a couple of examples. Um, as a design coordinator, and I have watched MMM probably close to 10 times. And I find new reasons to love it every single time. Yeah, that's the thing about the show, right? So much going on. You do need multiple viewings. Um, I, I love returning to any uh, movie or TV thing that I, that I so love and watch it over and over and over again. I do love that experience to learn more, catch more. Be delighted by more. Irma goes on. It is such a tapestry of so many different kinds of visual storytelling, which is definitely what animation is. MMM has really been there for me over the years, from dating my now husband, congratulations, having a baby, congratulations, and now branching out on my own, congratulations. This story has been there for me every step of the way. Thank you so much for all of this, uh, all that this gives me and continues to do so warmly. Irma, Irma, thank you very much um and and continued devotion and determination within your own career of creating i can't wait to hear and see more from and about you stay in touch if you if you'd like i'm a fan all right that is uh the conclusion of episode 38 of the pod david pamer part two continues next episode until then I shall see you in my dreams, and please, be kind to each other, won't you? Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal.
Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalle, And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.